Welcome to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay, fitting it all together to make teaching and learning in the junior grades more accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host, teacher by day, mom of three, and curriculum creator of all the things from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. We are for another episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. Today, we have a special guest. Celeste is here to join us. Celeste and I connected on social media. She was posting on her social media channels all about her ideas on teaching literacy, and they totally resonated with me. So I quickly hopped into her DMs and was like, we need to chat. And I would love to hear more about you and what you do with your literacy. So she agreed, thankfully. And we are here. And I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to have you introduce yourself to the audience and tell them a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Hi, yes, I would love to. I just, I'm excited to start this internet friendship, Patty. So the Mutual Admiration Society is in full swing because I think the world of you as well. My name is Celeste Kirsch. I live in Toronto with my wife and my two children. You may hear my two-year-old in the background, full disclosure. He is not in daycare today. So there's that delightful background noise. I've been a middle school teacher for the past 11 years, mostly grades six through eight and English and social studies is kind of my jam. But now I'm actually a full-time PhD student at U of T, the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. And I'm studying, well, what I want to study with my dissertation is writing instruction. So, you know, that's the stuff that I've been jamming out on, on Instagram and how we connected and how I found you. And I'm also the host of the podcast, Teaching Tomorrow as well. So full on teacher nerd over here. Love it. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm yeah. a little bit envious getting, going back and getting my master's and PhD is like in the back of my head. And- Do it. We is can have a whole it? other conversation. Yes. Oh. You know what? It's one of those things where it's just always been something I think I want to do for no other reason than just because I love learning. So I'm a little interested in that experience. (laughs) Well, it's um, funny because I, I wanted to become a teacher because I love learning. Like I realized that when I was sort of thinking about why am I doing this? What am I up to? And, you know, teaching has always been amazing and I've always loved it, but it's really the process of discovery that has like really made me want to get into that profession. And when I did my initial teacher ed, I did a master's at the same time. And then when I was in that program and I was doing like kind of a mini research project for that degree, I was like, I love this. I love getting to just interview people about what they do in their classrooms. I love getting to read books about what other people have done in their classrooms. So if you have like any kind of inclination towards sitting and reading a lot about something that you really like, I highly recommend going back to school, Patty, because it is, I mean, it's just such a privilege to get to sit and learn slowly about something. It is totally doable with kids. It is totally doable if you still want to teach in the background. Like it, it is way more possible for many people than I think we realize. Yeah. And for me, I have to wrap my head around like the time commitment. And I know I have to, I know I'd have to give something up. (laughs) So I have to be ready for that. Yeah, but I, it's it's kind of a fun puzzle piece to put together. Mm. So 
when I did my master's, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, but I knew that I wanted to go into the classroom for, you know, like at that time I thought five years and then I had two kids and it turned into 11 years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Be like, as it does, you're like, I yeah. want to do this in five years, which is such a joke. But I, I knew that I wanted to do it. And I think like when I was in, so it was pandemic, I had my first baby a month into the, or second baby a month into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I was on mat leave and I was driving my then JK child to school. And I was like, this is so nice to get to actually take my kid to school every day. If I'm a teacher next year, I won't get that like connection time with this teacher. I won't get this time with him. And it was like, actually by saying, like taking a step away from teaching on mat leave that it actually allowed me to look at my life in a different way and to see, okay, what do I actually want to do in the next 10 years? Like, and I think the pandemic has helped, like just, you know, teaching during the pandemic was really hard and like just deeply demoralizing, like teaching online. And then when I was in the building, I didn't feel connected to my community in the same way, which I didn't leave the classroom because of the pandemic, but I think it made it easier to realize, okay, something's got to change here and I have this opportunity. I'm going to take it. Yeah. I totally hear you on that one, that sometimes there's still parts of me that are like, when I grow up, like, what am I going to do? What's the next chapter? Like what? Yeah. My life is organized into chapters. What is the next chapter? And education is definitely there, but there's other things where I'm like, oh, okay, there could be other elements of education. It doesn't always mean like in the classroom for sure. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your experience in the classroom that kind of led, like what was, what's like the origin story of Celeste, (laughs) where you came from and like, what were those, those light bulb moments for you that were like writing and language arts is my my passion. Yeah. This is going to be like a huge part of the dissertation, right? So I could write 200 pages on this, but to keep it succinct, I I've been obsessed with having students write for authentic reasons. And one of those projects that just like changed the game for my students was this journalism piece that we would do. And it sucked the first year, Patty. It was like the worst thing ever. And it flopped and I ended up in the principal's office and I thought I was going to lose my job over it. And it was awful. And like, I realized by going through this, you know, what I thought was this like really authentic experience, they're going to write and they're going to publish and we're going to make it look like a real newspaper. And then, you know, there were some pieces about it that just did not work. And I went and I actually connected with real journalists and I was fortunate enough to like, you not be so proud that I couldn't like go to them and be like, this really bombed. How do I fix it? What do you think? And actual people who had been writing in the world of journalism for years, they're like, oh, these are like three obvious things that you should do. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Cause I'm, I'm not a journalist. So, you know, in, in my practice, I've sometimes brought in an actual poet, like someone who that's their whole job is to write poetry. And I've gained so much by partnering with expert writers in that field. Like I'm really good at journaling. (laughs) I'm really good at writing report cards. I'm really good at writing emails, you know, and I could like write poetry for fun, but there's something about the person who does that for their profession that knows things about that genre that I don't know. And I also realized that like the way that I learned is so social. I'm going to learn by an expert mentoring me 
or somebody who really knows that practice mentoring me rather than going to a big conference and sitting and taking notes while somebody's telling me about this new way to teach spoken word poetry, this new way to teach journalism. So I started, you know, as I was like thinking about this project and starting my PhD, I started, you know, tapping into the research as one does. And I realized that, oh, this is not unique to me, that actually this idea that teachers really struggle with teaching writing is universal. That is common. Teachers not knowing how to get better as teachers of writing, also universal. So like, it's hard. We don't know how to do it. We also don't know how to get better at it, which is challenging. And then I started, you know, digging into this idea of reverse mentorship, which I found this one really cool study where this teacher paired up with a recent journalism school graduate. And there was like a researcher attached. So there's like kind of like a triangle there, researcher, expert teacher, and then a journalism expert. But they're young. Like they were like, you know, 50-year-old teacher, a researcher, and then like a 20-something-year-old journalist. And it just clicked for me that this is a really interesting model for teacher learning. Like teachers partnering with somebody who really knows that genre, but is maybe not an expert in teaching and pedagogy, but to get better at that writing in that kind of a socially situated way. Um, and, you know, like I'm saying this now, it's my second semester of my PhD. So talk to me in a year, Patty, and it'll be like a completely different idea for what I want to do. But those are the kind of ingredients that I'm looking at and like the kind of cake batter that I'm stirring right now. So if you could describe your like ideal writing class. Yeah. yeah. Like there's lots of choice. There's so much choice and, you know, not even just choice, like here are three books you can read. Just like, it's just all choice. You know, it's students choosing their topics from anything. It's students being able to pick whatever book they're interested in. It's the choice is just the driving factor of everything. But also content, when you have to teach content, that's really connecting to students' passions and interests. So, you know, I think the ideal is that, you know, as a teacher, we are pretty proficient at like 10 genres. Like we can kind of pull out 10 genres as we go. And connecting those genres to students' needs and interests and passions as you go out through the program. So if a student's like, yeah, I really want to address this issue, as a teacher, you can kind of be like, I think that that might work best for you in poetry. Okay, here are some things that I can give you about poetry. Here are some videos that I want you to watch. Here's a small group that we can tap into because these other four students I think are leaning towards poetry. We'll do a small group instruction tomorrow on haikus. But that it's really about what that individual child needs. And I think if you asked me this a year ago, I would have said, you know, authentic audiences and publishing the writing, which I also think is true. But now I'm starting to see that there's like a bigger purpose for that publishing, which is affecting some kind of social change. So writing just to publish it on a blog for their parents to read, great, really good. But astounding is when that kind of writing could impact some kind of policy difference, like writing to your premier about something that's bothering you about your school system or writing a blog with your parents as an audience, but in ways to get them to rethink their plastic consumption. So thinking about the audience as a vehicle for some kind of change, like our curriculum should in an ideal world be making the world a better place. And I think that that's when students, like when I think back about the projects, like that journalism project that worked really well, it's because my students were actually 
impacting some change. Like one of my students was just annoyed at the fact that she had to wear a uniform. The, the school I taught at had uniforms. And so she was like you know, researching some of the gendered practices around uniforms and how girls would often get more uniform infractions and boys at co-ed schools. You know, my school wasn't a co-ed school, but, you know, she was researching other uniformed institutions. And then one of her sources was the vice principal, who was like, their job is to enforce uniform norms. And she sat down with her and interviewed her and wrote up her article. And in her post-article reflection, she had named, like, oh, actually, by sitting and talking to the principal and hearing her perspective on uniforms, I think I get it a little more. Like, I think I get where the school is coming from. And I don't feel as, like, angry about it. So her perspective changed by writing the piece. But the really interesting thing is that the next year, and I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, the next year, there weren't any uniform infractions. It was kind of like oh. quietly put on hold. And it wasn't like this big announcement of like, because of this student's article, <laughs> we are not doing it. And I'm like, yeah. I'm sure that like if somebody from the school is listening to this, they'd be like, talk to me and be like, that's not how it happened. But I thought it was like this really interesting because obviously the school would have read her piece. They would have seen it. They would have thought more about it. And maybe there was other things swirling in the background about uniforms and, you know, the media. But I, I think that that's an interesting piece that happened for that child where they didn't necessarily get to see the impact because they had left the middle school and moved right. on to high school. But they were able to see somebody's listening to me. Somebody is actually sitting down and having a conversation with me. And then, you know, the uniform rules slowly started to change. And I can't say that it was because of the article, but there is a power of putting your work out there and creating some kind of change in your small little world. It doesn't have to be like huge different change for policy for all of people in Ontario, but it can be something really small in your classroom that I think students yearn. They need to know that they have some agency in their lives. Yes. Yeah. And they have some control that they're not robots. They're not just yeah. coming to school to be like that, that the image that, you know, us as teachers open up the brain, pour the information in and then close yeah. the brain. And that that's oh, and consume all day is not authentic. And I think what was, what was popping in my brain when you were saying that was even finding common ground, like between your, the VP and your student and understanding yeah. the perspective of other students. And they're so in each other's worlds, but they, mm -hmm. they're not at the same time. They don't understanding and writing sometimes is a way for them to see things from a different perspective and see, even if it's, even if it's as small as somebody wrote a story and that inspired somebody else to like, maybe push a little bit more as to what they could do. They saw the yeah. possibilities. And I think yeah. that that's our goal, isn't it? Like our, our goal and our goal in writing is, is not to just make sure kids get B's and A's, but like to actually right. like do that and, and actually yeah. make that impact. What I often get, cause I think we're on the same page when it comes to like yeah. what literature should look like. Teach your besties here. Yeah. But one of the questions I always get, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it is, okay, that's great. It sounds great. I want to do that but how do I assess it? If every, if, because I think as teachers, we want to have control and the idea of it being a free for all 
in our, which is what, which is what it seems like it's, it's, it's not in practice. I will say that, but it appears that it's just a yeah. free for all. So then teachers in their, they almost talk themselves out of it and they think, yeah, well, what yeah, about yeah. assessment and, and how, how I'm going to manage that. And it, that sounds more overwhelming as a management piece and an assessment piece than what I'm currently doing. So why would I sign myself up for more work? So how would you respond to a teacher that agrees with that? Yeah. But that is immediately overwhelmed by the, how we implement that. I mean, my first thought is that nobody learns how to do a new assessment or a new teaching paradigm in a bubble by themselves. So the first thing that I would say is find somebody who's doing this really well in your school or in your district or in your neighborhood or friend and find a way to just observe them. And it's never been easier now to, you know, have those kinds of conversations. Like you can find an internet bestie like I did with you and just be like, hey, can I come talk to you about your practice? And we can't necessarily sit in other people's classes in different schools now, but, you know, there are ways to simulate that kind of observation. So the first thing I would say is like, don't try to figure it out on your own. The only way that you learn how to do inquiry is by doing inquiry yourself as a learner and finding those learning opportunities to simulate it. The second thing I'd say is that, you know, you really have to think broadly with learning goals. So something that we did as a department was we took all of the English learning goals from grades seven through 12 and they, they got distilled down. Everything in the Ministry of Expectations kind of got boiled down to 16 big learning goals that a student could access in grade seven, but they could also access in grade 12. And so when I'm looking at, you know, uses depth and detail in writing, which is one of the big learning goals that I was using with my students, that can show up in literally any piece of writing. So we think the easiest thing to do is to zoom out and to not think about each of those discrete ministry expectations as a checklist item, but to think about things more holistically. Obviously, ministry expectations are a thing, and there are certain things that those people care about. And you know, as you're progressing through your career, you have to show certain competencies to make sure that you stay employed. But you can redesign what a learning goal is so that it's not you know, just about these small expectations, but rather are about more of a bigger, broader learning goal. So a student working on a speech can be assessed in a similar way as a student who's writing a poem. Like Mm -hmm. depth and detail shows up in any piece of writing. Organized thought shows up in any piece of writing. And then if you're thinking about like, you know, there's only 16 language arts goals for the whole year, then If a student works on this one expectation at the beginning of the year and another student works on that expectation in the middle of the year, if you're finding a reasonable way to track it, it's not as complicated as it looks. Like I think I would also suggest people read up about competency-based learning because, you know, that's kind of moving away from learning that's about time in a seat and rather about mastery. So you can shift just something subtle about how you're collecting data and how you're assessing data so that it's less about the individual assignment and more about the learning goals that the assignment is trying to tap into, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's less about, you know, you got 87% on this assignment or on this unit test or on this piece of writing and more about I'm a teacher that's concerned with these learning goals, and I don't really care what assignment I get that shows me those learning goals. And a student might show it to me in October, or they might show it to me in April. But as long as they show it to me at some point and I have some evidence on it, that's what matters. Like, 
I mean, I think portfolios are probably the way of the future in terms of documenting and looking at student mm-hmm. growth over time. So yeah. if you're, you know, even just like curious about it, I would even point people to look at how are teachers using mastery-based learning, competency-based learning, portfolios, and just by observing and reading the writing of those teachers, you'll probably get into a different paradigm about what school and teaching can be. Yeah. I often find it takes me less. It takes me less time for prep and planning because I'm not making everything that needs to be necessarily delivered to students. If I'm just like, do what works for you, they're coming up with the ideas. So I'm not planning the ideas. They're coming up with how they're going to do it. So I'm not planning how they're going to do it. They're designing their own graphic organizers. So I'm not designing their graphic organizers. So all of that front loaded prep is, is less. And I'm doing so much in the moment that a lot of my assessment is in the moment. So I'm not taking it home and marking, or I'm like, it's, it's happening right now. So yeah, it's different, but I would, I don't know if it's necessarily, sometimes I don't think it's more, but no, it's just different. It's different. And I think those systems start, you know, you get more out of students that are energized and want to be in your classroom than when you're trying to like force students to do things they don't want to do. So much easier to manage engaged kids than kids that are dreading the next assignment you've got for them. Like it's, it's not work to manage an enthusiastic kid. So yeah. Yeah. Unless they're the ones shouting out and going like, "Ah." (laughs) yeah, which happens, which happens. I just wanted to ask a little bit of like the details, because I'm just personally curious. What is your dissertation? Like what is your main area of focus or question that you are answering? Yeah, I haven't actually written it down in like a research proposal yet. So it keeps changing (laughs) every time I put it down for some kind of funding proposal. But The dissertation that I want to write today is, I can't remember exactly how I worded my question last, but it's something about how do teachers learn new genres of writing as a writing teacher? So, you know, I'm interested in, like, my ideal would be that I can do some kind of critical practitioner research, which is really about working closely in partnership with a teacher in their classroom. It's basically getting to be like another adult in the room while a teacher does their program and collaborating meaningfully with them about a project. And I mean, in an ideal world for me, that project would be some kind of journalism unit because research is showing us pretty clearly that young people as early as middle school are not able to discern real from fake news. Mm -hmm. So in my head, I'm thinking, why not have students actually be writing as a journalist in order to understand that genre better so that they're able to spot fake news because they're in it. They're in that kind of media creation lens. Like we can study media, but actually creating media helps us understand it more intimately. And so genre would be something journalistic writing and also thinking about some kind of reverse mentorship model so that you know, I'm working with a seasoned teacher in their program, but they were also collaborating with a journalist and seeing, you know, what kind of teacher learning as a writer could happen in that sort of triangle partnership. That's, I mean, that's what it is today. And again, you could ask me. <laughs> Fair enough. I love yeah. that. I love that. I love hearing about the, the academia. I think we always need to be rooted in what you know, the research is telling us and best practices and learning as teachers and growing to sort of, you know, really push what it is and keeping updated on like 
the world is changing around us. So being able to be responsive and all of those things. So I love, I love hearing about your experiences and your research and all of that. So I'm super excited to continue to be able to like follow your journey and see how you follow and all of that. So tell people where they can find you so they can follow your journey too. I love it. I'm mostly hanging out on Instagram these days. So you can find me there at teaching underscore tomorrow. I'm also on Twitter, less so it's teach underscore tomorrow. Those are the best ways I think to find me. That's where, that's where I'm jamming out these days when I'm not, you know, with my children. On top of my head. <laughs> Fair enough. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was amazing hearing about your practice and your research and your experience. And uh, I know that those that are listening to the show are definitely like taking it all in and oh, loving yay. all of the things. So thanks again. Oh, thank and uh, I can't wait to continue to connect in our, new, our new friendship. <laughs> it's so good. Internet right. friends. Thank you you for listening to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay. Join me on www.madlylearning.com for more information on all things teaching in the junior grades. Don't forget, you can always catch this show on the Madly Learning YouTube channel. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Madly Learning.